Welcome to our Founders Lecture Series. In 1982, Inabara began classes in Bangor with just 86 students and 11 staff. Fast forward four decades and the school has experienced incredible change and growth, welcoming almost 1,200 students and more than 200 staff each day. This series honors a small group of pioneers whose vision led to what Inaburo has become today. In 2023, we continue to welcome guest speakers who are respected thinkers across the domains of education, the arts, psychology, theology, and philosophy to enrich our professional learning community here at Inaburo and more broadly. We hope you enjoy. Well, in terms of thanking people, I'd like to start by thanking God for his guiding hand upon us, thank him for his many blessings on our school, and also acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Ndurrawal people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. On this land, beliefs, knowledge, and culture have been shared across many generations, and this continues to be a place of teaching and learning. And as a place of teaching and learning, it's a great pleasure to welcome everyone here to the first of our Founders Lectures for 2023. And we're spreading out the lectures this year with three separate lectures, one in each of the first three terms of the year. The Founders Lectures were established last year as part of the 40th anniversary celebrations of the school. Now, 41 years ago now, a small group of pioneering members of Menai Baptist Church had the vision to build a school on this site. Beginning with 86 students in 1982, the school now has over 1,200. The lecture series is run in honour of the school's founders, whose prescience and determination led to the formation of Inabara School. The lectures seek to embody the vision of the founders, establishing Inabara School as a centre of learning, not just for the students at Inabara, but also for staff and members of the wider community. Inabara seeks to be a place of learning which brings glory to our Creator, Sustainer and Redeemer, and a place of learning in which people can thrive and flourish, experiencing something of the new heavens and the new earth that are to come in a Kingdom of God-shaped learning community. And this evening, we are privileged to have Professor Michael Anderson address us on the topic, Creating a Collaborative Culture for Learning. Michael is a professor at the University of Sydney, where he is a co-director of the CREATE Centre. He has published 17 books and 55 book chapters and journal articles. Michael is well known for his research into the four C's of creativity, critical reflection, communication and collaboration, and how these can be integrated into teaching practice to meet the needs of 21st century students. And at Inneborough, we've been looking to integrate these same four C's as part of our learning framework. It's therefore a great privilege for us to hear from Michael this evening as he shares his thoughts on how we can be creating collaborative cultures that promote learning. Please join me in welcoming Michael as he addresses us this evening. Hi everyone, thank you for joining me on this Monday night, which is a bit of a struggle, I know. Hopefully we'll have a good time tonight, we'll learn a little bit. I first want to thank Inabara for inviting me to be part of their Founders Series. I was an enthusiastic participant in last year's Founders Series with some fantastic presentations that I saw from Michael Jensen and Greg Clark. For those of you who were here, you obviously know how wonderful that work was, and hopefully I can live up to that high standard. 
So thank you very much for the opportunity. I also want to acknowledge country and pay my respects to Aboriginal people and Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. So tonight I want to explore something that we kind of take for granted, I think, in our daily lives, something that kind of happens all around us like the air we breathe, or at least we think it does. And I want to explore what might happen if we actually understood, deeply understood, that thing which we think we know about and which I think I know about. Well, hopefully I do know a bit about it because I'm, you know, giving this presentation. But there are a few things that I think we can understand which can deepen our experience of this quality of collaboration. There are a few things that I think if we understood them better, we could provide a better educational experience for our kids. And so tonight, I want to spend some time kind of digging into this concept of collaboration so that we might have a kind of a clearer understanding of what it is, but potentially more importantly, what it isn't. And then I want to kind of do four things. I want to discuss the meaning and application of collaboration. We're going to discuss how we can make collaboration a reality in our classrooms, in our schools and in our families. And you might think, oh, well, it's already a reality. I mean, you know, it happens all the time. It's a thing. I mean, kids are working together all the time. Teachers are working together all the time. But I think actually there are some really important impediments that we need to know about because I don't actually think true collaboration does happen that much in schools. But where it does happen, it happens because we make it happen, because we're intentional, because we're deliberate. And so I want to talk about how we might be intentional and deliberate and how we might design for collaboration rather than just hope it happens. The third thing I want to do is explore the opportunities for collaboration. Where might we collaborate? What might that look like? How might we design for that kind of collaboration? How can we do that in a way that actually helps us kind of embroider it into the, the kind of fabric of Innerborough or the fabric of the schools where you work? How might we think about it so that we can make our schools, places where collaboration is not just an accident, it's an expectation every day of the week. I'll show you some research in a little while that says that if we do actually manage that, it's going to make our lives so much richer. I'll talk about why that might be. And then I'm going to talk about a framework that Miranda Jefferson and I developed around collaboration. So it moves from this kind of abstraction, which we all talk about, to something that we can think about putting in place. And we're going to talk about what that might look like. And so if you walk away with nothing else, you'll walk away with a framework this evening that you can think about putting in place as part of your classroom practice or your family practice or whatever, or your work practice even. I want to start with a bit of context first. So the place that I'm coming from in education is this idea that we are in what's called an infinite game. The concept of an infinite game has been popularized by Simon Sinek recently. Does anyone know who Simon Sinek is? Few, few of us do. He's kind of like a modern day business kind of guru. But actually, it wasn't his idea. 
what Simon Sinek does, and he's very clever at this, is, is he finds great ideas and kind of makes them popular. There's a skill to that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's, that's bad. I think that's great. But it wasn't his idea. It was an idea that came from a guy called James P. Cars, who was kind of mid-80s religious studies academic. So who knew why it didn't become popular? But he came up with this idea with the finite and the infinite game. And the idea behind finite and infinite games goes something like this, right? We all know what finite games are. They're tennis, soccer, cricket, you know, Australia not being able to win anything in India is because we don't, we can't do cricket better than the Indian team at the moment in the men's game, at least the women's game, they're smashing it. But the men's game, we can't, you know, it's just not working out for us. We can't actually bring that to a conclusion. We can't win. So there's a winner and a loser. Oh, cricket's a bad example because, of course, it's going to be a draw. But anyway, let's let's pretend it wasn't. Let's say tennis, for argument's sake. The winners and losers, you know, we know how the scoring works, you know, what happens, and, you know, there's, there's a winner and a loser, right? There always is. So that's the finite game. Now, the infinite game is, the, and this is Carr's kind of contribution, is a game where there can't be winners or losers. The idea of a, an infinite game is that we keep everyone keeping in the game to the very last moment, that everyone's participating all of the time. And the thing with an infinite game is that actually you're not trying for wins or losses. The rules aren't always clear, but keeping everyone going all the time is the idea. And so, you know, international diplomacy is an infinite game. Health is an infinite game. We want to keep our society as healthy and well as we can be for the longest possible time. And of course, education is an infinite game. We want to keep all of our citizens as educated as possible for as long as possible. We don't want people to drop out and fail. That's the infinite game. The problem comes when finite games kind of take the place of the infinite game. So in education, there are finite games, there are winners and losers, and we know that from the HSC, we know that from NAPLAN, we know that from all sorts of things, that actually cut across what's possible in the infinite game, and they sometimes interfere with it. Now, what I am not saying is we should throw out NAPLAN and HSC. I might say that somewhere else, but I'm not saying it here. What I'm saying here is we need to make sure that NAPLAN, HSC, other finite games work in service of the infinite game, which is to keep everybody engaged as high as possible, as long as possible. And of course, the finite games assessment, for instance, is a fantastic thing if done well. If it helps us understand our learners, if it helps learning get better, it becomes less good when it becomes the only reason we're doing something. So HSC rankings is the only reason we're doing education is kind of anathema to me and most educators. What actually matters is how we keep our students learning. So that's the place where I'm coming from. And so in service of that idea this work comes from some work Miranda Jefferson and I are doing in schools and a team of us are doing in schools and that comes from these books, which I think we're going to give some away later.
How exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Look under your seat. It's not a car, but it could be a book that I've written. Wow. So it's not like I'm opera, really, is it? So that's the work that's kind of given birth to some of the ideas I'm going to talk about tonight if you want to go deeper into them. And it also comes from classroom practice. So the organisation I co-founded, 4C Transformative Learning, is in about 80 schools throughout Australia and overseas in different places. And we work with schools on the how of transformation, collaboration being one of those big things. So if you're interested in looking further into that, that's where to look. Okay. So what is collaboration? How does it work? Why does it matter? So let's have a think about that first before we go much further. I wanted to think first about whether teaching is actually collaborative. And when I was doing some research, this kind of pithy quote came out to me and kind of reminded me of very much of my experience as a teacher, actually. Teachers are separated from other teachers, making it difficult to benefit from their colleagues' expertise or to share their expertise with others about how to help more students learn. This way of structuring schools has often been referred to as the egg crate model, compartmentalised, lonely, and not optimal for students or teachers. Now, I don't know how many of you look at that and think, oh yeah, I've experienced that. I would imagine most teachers have experienced that because in certain schools, and I'm not saying all schools by any stretch of the imagination, the design of the school is almost at the exclusion of collaboration. Typically, I walk into a classroom, there's 25 kids, 30 kids sitting in front of me in rows, which, you know, is not a great collaborative thing from the get-go. And I teach for 50 minutes and then I move on to the next lot of 30 kids. It's kind of an industrial model that we've created for efficiency. But it actually doesn't allow us to engage in a collaborative process as we might like. And so what schools need to do to overcome this is actually kind of work against that, is to design against that, is to design differently so that we don't have this egg crate model where the maths teacher and the science teacher and the English teacher never speak, so that we don't have this model where we are all lonely in our own moments in front of our students, that we are actually thinking about how we kind of overcome this. And so designing in this kind of concept of collaboration is really critical. But the first hurdle that we face is the problem of collaboration being an aerosol word. No aerosol words, you spray them around, they smell beautiful, but when you try and grab them, they're gone, right? Creativity, so oh, God, smells fantastic, spray it around, oh, nothing there, you know? Communication, collaboration, innovation, they're words that are in, you know, every policy document, every education document. Try and grab them. They're nowhere to be seen. And if you've got to teach year nine on a Tuesday afternoon, they're not much use, right? You actually need to be able to find a place to hang on to. You need something that you can teach. You need something you can understand. You need something that you can grab hold of. So one of the things that we're going to do tonight is to talk about 
what collaboration is and what collaboration isn't. And then we're going to come to a point of talking about how we might think about a structure for teaching collaboration. So what is collaboration? What is cooperation? How do these things work? And what might we do about it? So here's what the Cambridge Dictionary tells us. Now, this is a terrible move by speakers to just quote a dictionary and it's kind of a year nine move. But I wanted to put it up there because I wanted to put out there what the world kind of thinks about it. The act of working together with other people or organisations to create or achieve something. I think that's a fairly underwhelming vision of collaboration in my view. I much prefer Vera John Steiner's idea of a shared affair of the mind. When you are working hand in glove with somebody. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talked about the concept of flow and what Csikszentmihalyi meant in flow was that you are so involved in the act of collaboration that you lose track of time. It is so engaging. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about when I talk about collaboration. So this is quite an aspirational concept in many ways. And we need, I think, to move from the idea that we just kind of work together to seeing collaboration as something we need to aspire to, something we need to engage with, because it's not easy. I don't know how many of you out there have had that sense of that kind of seamless engagement and that kind of working together such that it feels like it's kind of this idea of the shared affair of the mind, but it's pretty rare in my experience. And when it does happen, it is incredibly productive. It is incredibly powerful. If we could only get that to be part of what happens in schools more often, we would have happier workplaces. We would have more productive workplaces. We would have happier people. And I think the other really useful, I suppose, well, it's not an analogy, but it's kind of a practice is thinking about jazz bands. Anyone know anything about jazz here? That's good. There's a little bit of... uh, uh. So Keith Sawyer talks about jazz improvisation being the truest form of collaboration because what's going on in a jazz collaboration is nobody's actually reading off sheet music. People are just picking up cues and working with cues all the time and they are engaging, the musicians are engaging with each other to make this beautiful sound just by knowing what's in the other musician's mind and by listening, by noticing, by hearing and moving with that flow. In fact, Vlad Glavenau talks about, these guys are both educational psychologists, Keith Sawyer's work on jazz improv is really interesting if you're interested in working through that collaborative idea. Vlad Glavenau says no creativity can happen that's not collaborative, which is pretty kind of radical. Like nothing that happens creatively happens without collaboration. And when you think about it, maybe that's true because people even individually are collaborating with all sorts of technologies or machinery or ideas. We're all collaborating all the time. But how well we collaborate is, I think, the thing that we need to think about and the thing we need to aspire to. This is what collaboration isn't. It's not cooperation. 
driving home, if I speed, a police person can pull me over and give me a ticket and I can cooperate with them, but I'm not collaborating with them. And I think we do this all the time in schools. We cooperate with each other, but we don't collaborate. You know, we kind of just put up with each other and, you know, we do the meeting or we do the talk, you know, you, everyone sits around and so-and-so says this and such-and-such such says that and we all, yeah, okay. But it's not collaboration. It's not one of those things that we're aspiring to. True collaboration is when actually we're offering and we're yielding ideas all the time and we're producing something that is better than the sum of the parts. And I think the idea of cooperation is that we actually just kind of just do it because we have to. Now, there's nothing wrong with cooperation. If I was to get up and not cooperate with that police officer, I would be in jail. So cooperation has its place and it's a good thing to be able to do. But it isn't the highest form of social engagement that we can attain. It's not collaboration. The other thing that collaboration isn't is giving into somebody else's ideas because they're higher up the tree. They're more important than you, theoretically. That's also not collaboration. That's just giving in. And it's also not following without question. So there's something deeply what we call agentic. There's something where we actually have control and choice about collaboration. We choose to go into it. We choose to engage with it and we choose to work with it. Judith Warren Little came up with this kind of concept about the way people collaborate and particularly teachers. She talked about it this way. And she put it on a continuum, which I think is really helpful. The first is the undermined sharing of work. So you've probably all been in a situation where people are sitting around and someone says, well, you know, I've come up for this great unit of work for Macbeth. And then the other person sitting across the room says, oh, really, Macbeth again? You do Macbeth every year. So there's the undermining of the sharing already. So that's death to collaboration. And I think that happens quite a lot. The second thing that she talks about is that this is getting slightly better, but we're still in deficit here. The ostrich that sticks the head in the sand. So, you know, something's going on. We need to deal with something. We need to collaborate over this. And then one member of the group says, oh, no, I don't, I, I'm, just, I'm just doing what I've always done. I'm not engaging. I've heard all this nonsense about school transformation before or this nonsense about new units about Macbeth or whatever and sticks their head in the sand and doesn't engage with it. The third is what happens a lot in staff rooms and in work organisations all the time. It's the scanning and storytelling. So instead of people collaborating, they talk about what they see. Oh, well, I see that this is happening and I see that that's happening. And then when I was in my last school, I did a unit on Macbeth. It was really good. You know, the kids loved it, et cetera, et cetera. No one actually engages with anything anyone's saying, really. But there's a lot of kind of that kind of talk. The next is aiding and assisting. Okay, so we're starting to kind of get off the mat here. Uh, so I've got this unit on Macbeth. Oh, that's interesting. I've got a unit on King Lear. And maybe some of the techniques I used there might be useful in your Macbeth unit. Maybe we should try and have a look at how that's working. Again, still not collaboration, but it's getting there. 
The true sharing is when we sit down and go, okay, let's look at those units side by side. Let's try and work out if we can do some, maybe some team teaching. Let's maybe see if we can put the classes together and do something. And then the joint work comes when they actually do that. They actually do the team teaching. And then, of course, at the other end of the spectrum is this idea of leadership role in sharing, that you're actually leading the sharing of information. You're taking this work and you're actually modeling what it is to collaborate with it. And I think if you've been in any number of staff rooms, you will recognize the kinds of experiences that Judith Warren Little talks about because they are kind of commonplace, I think. But we only start to see collaboration when we're seeing that joint work, that kind of, I suppose, generosity of spirit that comes when we give and receive ideas and work with each other. We like to sum it up like this, that We've got social interaction, which is, you know, just engaging with each other in a human way. Cooperation then sometimes springs from that. Working together is kind of slightly higher than that on the charts, on the kind of spectrum. And then collaboration is what we're aiming for. And in a school that's working well or a classroom that's working well, we start to work through those through those levels and we see changes in what's going on in that staff room, in that school and in that classroom. So what's the theory behind this? What's the research behind this? Why does it matter? Is this a kind of a research-free zone or is it something that we can kind of engage with in a way that will be useful? So I'm going to talk to you tonight about this work that's come from Ryan and DC. It's about 20 years old now. It's been incredibly influential in the way people think about motivation and engagement in classrooms. Many of you will have seen this work before. It's called self-determination theory. And a lot of our work in transformative learning in schools is actually based on a lot of this work. And it says some really, for a theory, it's a fabulous theory because everyone can pretty much understand what it is that you know, Ryan and Deezy are talking about. They're talking about three areas. They say that for us to survive and thrive as human beings, we need three things in our lives. We need competence, so we need to be good at something. We need to be working towards being good at something or to be good at something. We need autonomy. So we need to be able to be autonomous in our decision-making. We need to have some control over our lives. And the third thing is we need relatedness. We need to be able to relate to each other and work with each other. We can see where collaboration comes in there in terms of relatedness, but autonomy is also pretty important. Actually having control over our own lives and being able to direct them is important and it's critical in collaboration. But also competence in being able to work with each other is is going to be critical as well. And if you think about those things in education, you start to think about what might be possible. How do we actually help kids be competent in the things that they're doing? I think schools are pretty good at that. How do we support them in their autonomy? Schools have been better and worse at that, I think. Sometimes they're great at it. Sometimes they're not great at all. And then how do we kind of foster that relatedness? And I'd say collaboration is one way that we can really start to think about that relatedness being important. What's the evidence? 
I'm not going to read this to you because you can read for yourself, but there is a bunch of evidence over years and years that students who are engaged in collaborative learning have better outcomes and have better effectiveness across a whole range of areas in IT learning, in maths learning, in science learning. And then that last statement, collaborative learning appears to work well for all ages if activities are suitably structured for learners' capabilities and positive evidence has been found across the curriculum. So it doesn't matter whether you're a maths educator, whether you're a music educator, whether you're a year three teacher with who you are, Collaborative learning works if it's designed well, if it's implemented well, if it's done well. The other thing is that there's kind of broad agreement about collaboration too as being a good. That research by Priyanka and Walton, for instance, that social cues that signal an invitation or an opportunity to work with others can inspire intrinsic motivation, leading people to work hard on difficult tasks for their inherent satisfactions, even in the absence of external pressure. When we collaborate, we feel better about doing it. We are more motivated. We are more engaged. Or Andy Hargraves, who's a kind of bit of a rock star in education, research since the 1980s has demonstrated that teachers who work in collaborative cultures tend to secure higher results in reading and mathematics compared to colleagues who work in cultures of individualism. And that the social capital of teacher collaboration adds value to individual human capital in terms of impact to students. So what Hargraves is saying there is it matters not only because we can get better maths and other kind of outcomes, it matters because actually teachers enjoy it more. It leads to a better culture. It leads to a more satisfying way of engaging, way of working. And then the OECD chimes in with a collaborative culture within school shows one of the strongest associations with teachers' self-efficacy and job satisfaction. So we retain our teachers, our teachers are happy, happier, and our results go up. I mean, you would have to imagine why we're not doing collaboration every day of the week on that basis, why we're not embedding it into our school cultures. So these are the kinds of activities that we see when in collaborative school cultures, and this comes from Hargrave's work as well. We see professional learning communities, that that's the idea that there are people working together to engage with some kind of knotty problems that they have. Collaborative planning, learning walks, that might sound ridiculous to anyone who's not been in education, but actually walking around, learning about what's going on in a school is incredibly powerful for understanding learning. Instructional rounds, which is walking into other teachers' classrooms, watching the teachers work, watching kids learn. I'm going to talk about a version of instructional rounds that we use. Collaborative inquiry, which is working together on a problem to understand how to deal with an issue or a problem or a challenge in school, lesson studies, school networks, data teams, self-evaluation processes, peer review. There's a hundred of these. But what we find and what Fullen found in high-performing schools and schools where teachers are happy, where kids are happy, is collaboration sits at the centre of what's going on. And these processes are all part of it. So this is one of the approaches that we use in collaborative practice. It's called the deep noticing and action eye. 
which we use to understand what's going on in schools to kind of help teachers structure inquiry. So we've got a driving question and then we've got noticings and actions and then the questions, the listening, the exploring and the reviewing to kind of understand how to put all that together. But it starts with a great question. One of the things that we do is we go into classrooms with groups of teachers and we ask those teachers not to look at the teaching but to look at the learning. That's an incredibly powerful thing to do actually. Ignore what the teacher's doing. What's going on with the kids? What are the kids seeing? What are the kids doing? I did it about a year ago now at a school in the inner west. I think it was a year 10 class. And I walked in, the teacher was teaching away and it was all fine. It was a drama class. It was all fine. But we weren't looking at the teacher. We were looking at the kids. And the kids were standing in a circle, as you often find in a drama class. And all of a sudden, the kids started swaying almost imperceptibly. I have no idea why they did that. But it is something that I had never noticed in the physicality of young people that they do. And now when I go into classrooms, they do it all the time. They almost sway in unison. Watch it sometime. It's bizarre. And it's not like it was some TikTok kind of flash dance thing. It was just a thing they were doing. Now, I never would have noticed that if I'd been looking at the teacher and going, oh, well, you know, you could have asked a deeper question there and et cetera, et cetera, which of course I'm trained to do. That's what I do when I go and watch beginning teachers teaching. But actually watching the learning was so valuable to me because it taught me something about not what was going on in the teaching, but how learners are engaging and not engaging. It helped me think about my own practice and reflect on my own practice. And that this is one of the things that we go, go into to kind of with that noticing. What are you noticing in that collaborative practice? How are you noticing these things? And how might you work together to resolve some of the issues that are in your school? And this is a structure that we've used really effectively to do that. So we've now talked about why collaboration, what the research is like for collaboration. I'm now going to talk to you about a framework for collaboration. So we've got these four coherence makers for the four Cs, the creativity cascade, the critical reflection crucible, the communication crystal and collaboration circles. They're a way to make coherence of those aerosol words, those things that we spray around. It helps people grab them. Tonight I'm going to talk about collaboration circles. Collaboration circles kind of is an attempt to bring together what we know about high-quality collaboration. It's an attempt to move us to that aspiration beyond cooperation, beyond just teamwork, and actually help us to put strategies around what collaborative practice might look like when it's high-performing. And the first part of it is offering. To collaborate, you need to have offers. You need to have a generosity of spirit. If everyone comes into a collaboration and goes, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do about this. We've got nowhere to start. So the first stage is offering. And there will be different offers and there will be offers that are conflicting sometimes. That doesn't matter. But the first stage has to be to have an offer. The second is yielding. And we'll talk about yielding a bit more in a second, but it is that idea. It's not that idea that you yield like you give way 
although you may do that occasionally in this phase, but you yield as you come together. So there are times when you bring an offer and then you yield by coming together and working together to bring elements of the different offers that make sense. The third area is kind of the where the work gets done, I think. Challenging, evaluating and extending. And in this phase, we actually challenge the ideas that we've come up with collaboratively and we try and break them. Not in a kind of malicious way, but in a way that actually helps us understand how robust the concepts are. And as I'm talking about this, I'm, I'm thinking about the organisations that use this kind of methodologies as well. This isn't just something that's being used in schools. This is being used in organisations as we speak as a way of helping them to understand the structures that sit underneath collaboration. So how you challenge, how you evaluate and how you extend collaborative process and ideas is really critical. And then the fourth one is advancing co-construction and connections. And the idea there is that you take what you've got from that challenging, evaluating, extending, and you advance it further and you connect it to other ideas that are going on in the network or in the school or wherever you're working. So, for instance, if you're working on an interdisciplinary project, you're going to work on how you kind of co-construct that with, if you're in science, with music, and how you make those connections to make that collaboration kind of go further, connect further, spread out like a web. So what's that actually mean in practice? So we talk about an offer is to be an active participant who initiates an idea or action in a group. Offers require commitment and emotional and behavioural processes in confidence and influence. You have to be able to communicate to offer. But without confidence and influence, the communication the offer has no effect. So it's critical that we build influence and the understanding of influence in our students to be able to offer. Because it takes a certain amount of confidence to be able to offer. It takes a certain amount of confidence to come up with something that is substantive that people can work on. So that's the first stage. The second stage is a yield, is the acceptance and development of an offer. A yield is not simply saying yes, so that's giving in. We talked about giving in before and just kind of giving up to another person's offer. It is taking an equal share in supporting or shaping the focus of the offer. In essence, yielding is the beginning of building on from prior knowledge in the joint construction of learning and creating in collaborating. So this is the yield is the moment where actually true collaboration starts. Offer is kind of just a the opening gambit. But when you start to yield is when you start to see great pieces of collaborative process come together. If you actually go with an idea and you go with the ebb and flow, it can be quite, quite productive. It's kind of doing the collaborative work, that offering and yielding. If you actually set this up as a structure in your classroom, in your staff meetings, in your work organization, it actually sets up a process so people know what's going on. We do a process actually, and we did it with a group of people who weren't getting on, where you give them different cards. You give them, you know, different coloured cards, so hearts, diamonds. What are the other ones? Club space. Club space. Thank you. Thank you for the gamblers in the room. 
And you actually give that a value. So you say, okay, that's a challenge card. That's an offer card. That's a yield card. That's an extend card. And in this group of people, the boss could almost not control themselves from playing all their cards at once and then trying to play other people's cards all the time. And we wondered why there was an issue with collaboration there. because And there were people who couldn't play cards at any time. They could never play a challenge card. And the thing that taught us and the thing that taught them is that there was a systemic problem with that group, which was people didn't know how to collaborate. They didn't know how to do these things. So that idea of challenging, evaluating and extending is critical to making sure that the ideas and the processes that you're coming up with are robust, that they haven't got unintended consequences, that they aren't going to be knocked over. And it's important to do it for those reasons. It's difficult to do it. And if you read the literature on collaboration and the research on collaboration in classrooms and in schools, it says that there is a culture of politeness around collaboration in schools where we're so polite to each other. We don't want to kind of offend each other. We don't challenge each other. But the problem with that is that we, if we're not challenging, we're not putting those ideas up to robust scrutiny. And of course, there's ways and ways to challenge things. But we need to kind of be thinking about that difficulty in a way that actually helps us work towards challenging things in a respectful manner, to work towards evaluating things and extending things in a respectful manner. And when you look at high-performing collaborative classrooms, those things are present They are able to challenge. People are able to challenge. People are able to evaluate and able to extend in ways that are respectful and supportive. And when you get those things happening, the shared affair of the mind, that kind of really seamless, exciting collaboration kind of happens. So I suppose there's some, when I think about classrooms, there's some questions that come up for me when I'm looking at a collaborative classroom and I'm thinking about my own collaborative classroom, is my classroom environment a place where all learners consistently practice offering their thinking to the classroom? All learners, including the back row of kids that you don't ever hear from because they never put their hands up and they never talk. How do we find ways to make that happen? How do we find ways to help them be courageous in their offers? How do we find ways to help them, you know, have the influence to do that? Listening to and yielding respectfully to each other. How do we build respectful listening and respectful responses in our young people? And it's by doing it over and over again. And it's by having the frameworks in place. And it's by working on it. It doesn't happen by osmosis. Collaboration does not happen just because we want it to. It needs to be structured in the way we work. Challenging, evaluating and extending each other's thinking and we're getting to higher order work here, but I've seen this work in year five classrooms and I've seen it work better than most staff rooms. So it can work and it does work. And feeling like they are part of the co-construction that is the group's learning. How can they all feel like they have agency or they have autonomy, to use Ryan and DC's words, but how can they also feel like they are part of this thing that the group has created? So when we're talking about building a collaborative school culture, I think I've got four things to say about that. 
I think we need to understand what collaboration is and build towards deep collaborative practice across your organisation or our organisations. We need to actually be kind of really deliberate about thinking about frameworks, about how we do it, how we run our staff room, how we run our staff meetings, sorry, how we run our processes, how we do the things we do. Where is the deep design for collaboration in those things? Do we just do them the way we've always done them or do we work on ways to make them more collaborative, more engaging? Secondly, We've got to actively teach collaboration skills in the classroom. It's no good just expecting kids to collaborate. It's not a natural state in my view. It's something we have to actively teach and actively construct. And the reason people whinge about collaboration or what they think collaboration is all the time, and I'm sure people have concerns about collaboration and it not working, free rider effect, the reasons that it doesn't work, and there's a bunch of reasons that it doesn't work, is because I think we hardly ever structure it for our young people in a way that's going to be constructive in an ongoing fashion. We just kind of expect it to happen and we put them in groups and we expect it to happen, but it doesn't just happen. Kids don't just learn maths because we want them to. You know, we don't just give kids blocks and say, well, work out how maths works, but we do with collaboration. I think that's odd. And I think developing strategies for non-contrived collaboration, so collaboration which is authentic, which is enjoyable, which people can engage with. So the DNAI is one way to do collaborative inquiry and make space and time for collaboration to ensure creativity and innovation can flourish. I'm going to finish with a Vera John Steiner quote because I think it's a lovely way to think about collaboration and its possibilities. Through collaboration, we can transcend the constraints of biology, time, of habit, and achieve a fuller self beyond the limitations and talents of the isolated self. If we believe what Ryan and DC is saying about relatedness, if we believe what the research is saying about the power of collaboration, I think we owe ourselves, and more importantly, we owe our young people a proper understanding and a proper interrogation of what collaboration can be. Because if we get that right, we set them up for success in the collaborations they will have throughout their lives. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Founders Lecture Series. For more information about Innerborough School and Community, visit www.innerborough.newsouthwales.edu.au and hit follow on the Innerborough Podcast channel for a range of upcoming content.